Hi, this is Caitlin McFarland. And this is Emily Gibson. And we're the co-founders of ATX Television Festival. And you're listening to the TV Campfire. So today, December 5th, it's cold outside. I'm not, yeah, I'm not kidding. Cold it really and windy is cold and gross. We are releasing Class Ceiling, which was at season eight of the festival. Of the many descriptions that we have attached to panels at the festival, I actually really love that this one is one sentence. Yes. This was in the program guide. A look at the, into the depictions of classes in America and TV's relationship in the ever-changing definition of the working middle classes. And we had on it Laura Chen, who is the creator of Florida Girls, D. Harris Lawrence, who is the showrunner of David Makes Man, Jennifer Gomez, a writer on Vita, and Gladys Rodriguez, who's also a writer on Vita. And I feel like this was one, correct me if I'm wrong, I was trying to think about like how this came about. Because, you know, we've talked about the panels that we've had on our list for a really long time and take them away and add yeah. to them and they change shape. This one, I feel like, we came up with the tie, like, let's play on glass ceiling, obviously, <laughs> but like had been talking about the class system. Like, well, and I feel like this was a spark of an idea that you had a while ago. Yeah. And the first show you wanted incorporated, which because of timing didn't work out, was Shameless. Yeah. I feel like that was kind of the basis for it. Mm -hmm. And then we really started expanding on the topic from there. And these shows fell in line. Yeah. Easily with the programming that we had coming to the festival in a great way. Yeah. I think that's sparking that we were having, like you and I and people in our lives have lots of conversations about the current state of the world and, you know, life and our representation and what we're being exposed to. And I think I realized all, I don't want to say all of these issues boil down to this, but like a lot of issues with race and all of the representation that we're trying to be better about and more educated about and, you know, politically and all of those things, a lot of them really do boil down to class. Like, what do you have access to? What education do you have access to? You know, who are you surrounded by? If you're in a wealthy neighborhood, you're around other wealthy people. If that kind of thing, that a lot of the issues that we're struggling with or struggling to be more understanding of and get, you know, whether it was the election a few years ago or, you know, Southern issues or all of the different things that I'm not being very eloquently listing at the moment can at least be attributed in one way or the other to class and a socioeconomic state. And so kind of having that conversation in conjunction with all the other levels of representation that we want represented at the festival and that we see represented on television. And so I think that was also, I like it when some of our panel conversations truly come out of our life conversations. Yeah. And then what is TV doing to show them? And Shameless was definitely. Well, because there's been a number of incredible shows over the years that class played a huge part into the show, but not as a positive or a negative, just a this is the life of these people mm -hmm. of a certain class. And I feel like obviously Norman Lear did that mm -hmm. many times. And then you had Roseanne and Alice Connors and shows like that where so many shows out there. I mean, people are just kind of you can't really tell where they fall yeah, in line. Yeah. You know, they have nice houses, but they don't necessarily have nice things or they're really wealthy that, or there's this range of kind of middle to upper class that's shown on TV a lot. But the lower to middle class mm -hmm. and the the struggle where it's not always just about the struggle, but that's a part of the identity and the life of who they are. Right. Even though they're dealing with the exact same issues everyone else is dealing with. Yeah. I think over time, the middle class came to encompass a very big, yes. not accurate group of people. And a lot of times people who are upper class would be like, oh, I'm middle class. But like they had a lot of things that 
middle class people really, if you're being super accurate about it. Also, as our country has grown and various institutions have changed, I don't think that it's very clear what that even is. Like, there's poverty and then lower class and then middle. And like, I think that a lot of that has just gotten super washed away. And so a little bit of class ceiling, I think, was even just discussing what that is. Yes. And so it was nice, even though Shameless didn't get to be a part of this, that we were able to have a nice representation of like three very different shows. Vita, David Makes Man, and Florida Girls are representing different areas of the country, different Mm -hmm. people, just wide range of issues. So it was fun that we didn't let go of this panel just because Shameless couldn't be a part of it. Yeah, but that's the best part is we come up with an idea for a panel topic and it's able to take many different not even twists and turns, but there's many shows that can be represented on it. Mm-hmm. And it's really nice when it comes together at the end of the day with just as good of shows as the original concept was surrounded. Yeah, I agree. Well, and this panel is moderated by Tara Ariano from the Extra Hot Great podcast. You guys should go listen to it if you haven't before, but we love Tara and we're really very excited that she got to moderate this one. Yes. So enjoy Class Ceiling from ATX Season 8. Hello, thank you for coming. It's, uh, yes, Tara Ariano here from Extra Hot Great, also an editor-at-large at Primetimer. Very excited for this panel with uh, writers from one returning show and two brand new shows that I'm excited to talk about. So let's bring everyone out. Starting with Gladys Rodriguez from Vita. <laughs> Jennifer Gomez, also from Vita. D. Harris Lawrence from David Makes Man. And Laura Chin from Florida Girls. Welcome, everybody. Oh, I took someone's mic. Can you hand this to Thank you for uh, doing that space work. Um, before we start and get into the questions, since uh, D and Laura both have new shows that haven't premiered yet, let's start with D. Can you just give a, a brief um, summary, just describe what the show, what David Makes Man is about, so people know uh, what we're talking about? Okay. Um, based, David Makes Man uh, will be airing on OWN, Oprah's Network. Um, it will premiere in August, and is uh, about a 13-year-old um, young black man, young black boy, excuse me, who basically uh, uses the power of his imagination to get through a childhood trauma as he's navigating his world, um, going from the hood that he grew up in to the prep school that he's trying to get to. Great. Laura, wow, Florida that Girls. Sounds really good. <laughs> Um, I'm, mine's a comedy. Um, <laughs> uh, it's a, it's a show called Florida Girls. Uh, it airs on Pop Network, which is Shit's Creek's network. Ah, that's where the recognition comes in. Um, we're so thankful to Shit's Creek. And, um, uh, but yeah, it's about, uh, four girls living in Florida. In the pilot, uh, one of the girls in their friend group moves off to the big city to go follow her dreams the big city of Columbus, Ohio. Um, yes. And the girls left behind are kind of like, what are, what, are, what are we doing? Are we losers? And, you know, some of them are like, no, we're awesome. And some of them are like, we should get our GEDs. And um, it's just kind of like, you know, 20-something girls trying to figure out their lives and um, answering the big questions. Yeah. Thank you so much. Sounds um, good, too. <laughs> so we'll start with you, Laura, since you, you are a creator of your show. Um, a truism it, that we hear a lot about television is that it should be aspirational. Mm. 
Is that something that you heard when you were pitching Florida Girls? And if so, how did you counter that? Yeah, um, we did hear that a lot. I think a lot of times the reasons why we see on TV like a family that's treated as normal is actually like extraordinarily wealthy. Like they're in a huge house and they have tons of money and cars and everything, but it's never talked about because I think TV really, they just want it to be aspirational and everyone's doing great. Um, so that was definitely a topic that we talked about, but I think the show is aspirational, um, maybe not in a capitalistic sense, uh, but in the sense that these girls have a ton of fun and they really like love each other um, and are there for each other and they have this like family unit. Um, and uh, there's like something to be said for like instead of sitting in traffic to get to your job so you can deal with your dickhead boss, you're like on the beach drinking margaritas and not thinking about the future. Um, so there's something aspirational in that, it's just not uh, typical aspirations, I guess. I aspire to do that all the time. <laughs> Um, all of you are writing shows about uh, working class characters. Obviously, this is what the panel is about. Are there past inspirations and or cautionary examples of the portrayals of working class people on TV that were sort of on your mind while you were watching your shows? Do you want to start with you? Um, you mean the characters that are on the show yes, that are working yeah. class? If there were... I'm trying to think of how many... After you said that about they always have, like, the rich houses, I'm thinking about what, who were working class folk. I know. Anyone um, feel free to jump in. I know. It's like, it's like Roseanne. Right, every, right. Yes. Uh, my name is Earl. Mm -hmm. There's, like, not that many. Yeah, they're really not that. Oh, sh now, Shameless is funny. Mm -hmm. um, Shameless, I think, was smartly done. I mean, when you do a show from the UK and then transfer to um, the US, you're always a little like, mm, can we do it better? But I think they took it and did it, <laughs> you know? And I think they took it and did it differently and made it their own and it was uh, pretty amazing. I did kind of get sucked into that. So um, that was probably one, but I think with David Mix Man uh, and this uh, Terrell Alvin McCraney who uh, wrote, co-wrote Moonlight, uh, who won the Academy Award. This is loosely based on him, even though I was like, I am the female David. Um, basically, it was like showing, you know, how everyday people um, are universal. All the, their problems and what they go through are universal. So I think that was very important. One show that comes to mind for us on Vida, uh, that's actually was happening parallel to us, was uh, One Day at a Time. I felt, I mean, that, obviously that was sort of the sitcom version um, of that of, of a show, right? But like, it, it really dealt with sort of characters that were trying to make ends meet at times. And so to see the journey of that mother, um, I think that was like a great example of how to do it as well. Um, but you know, there's not that many Latinx shows to compare ourselves to, uh, which, you know, obviously should not be that way, uh, but it is. And so when I think about sort of the Latinx shows, a lot of times like the drama is sort of that narco drama and sort of that drive. And it's so for us, it's so refreshing to be able to kind of, you know, tell a story that's much more reflective of our past, you know, and I came from a very working class family, a very poor family. Um, so be able to tell stories that feel true. Uh, I mean, it's just a privilege. Yeah, I, I think like in the same sense, like when I was growing up, I watched so many shows about like 20 something girls that were like graduated from NYU and they're like, now what do we do? You know? And I was like, what? <laughs> um, I was like, you know, didn't, I dropped out of high school. So like, it's, it's like telling those stories is so important because I think not everybody, I don't think everybody gets a chance to like leave those situations and go on to be writers. You know. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny because like me and Dean met on a show that we worked on together called Star on Fox, and it was about three like basically well, two foster sisters, right. and we I think that was like the first show that I had worked on that 
Well, I worked on Sons of Anarchy too, so I guess when you're thinking about like you know class problems or whatever, or like lower class problems, I did work on Sons of Anarchy, then Star, and I felt like I don't know, like for some reason, I, I, there's a groundedness to it, and. I think I related to that more because I feel like I can't relate to, and I, it's funny because just to tell you guys, I also worked on Dynasty, which is just the, the opposite. Um, so it was like such a weird jump from writing about these foster sisters right. who are practically homeless mm -hmm. and going to a show like Dynasty, but it, I definitely related to um, those girls more. And now writing for on Vida, it's just like, yeah, you do... It's just a more grounded story, and you can relate to the characters more. At least I can. Yes. So. Uh, well, I won't ask why some entertainment reporters or critics tend to only consider shows about white working class people when they're writing trend pieces about TV shows about working class characters, because we know why we're adults. But is that also frustrating to you, and how do you counter that on your shows? Let's start at the other end this time. Um, hmm, how do we counter that? Well, we don't, we're talking about um, problems that affect. Latinx community, and you know, we how do we we don't have white characters on our show really, so that's how we. I mean, I don't know, I don't know how to answer that really, but um, yeah, the story the story that we're telling is very specific to our community, and so you know. Yeah, I feel like it's almost layered in, right? Like, I feel like the whiteness that we see, we talk about um, colorism on the show, and we also talk about. Um, one of the terms that we use is white Tina, right? So it, it, the whiteness is actually layered in the characters. Like some characters might identify more as white or some might, other people might call them that. And so the, the big premise of the show has to do with gentrification. And so we see that, but on our show, the gentrification is actually being caused by the Latinx community themselves as well. So sort of like one character who's like, kind of risen and like has the ability and to potentially help people decides to I'm going to be a big developer and is actually hurting the community that he came from. Um, so it's very complicated on our show, but it, it's much more layered into sort of a Latinx experience. Uh, but we still address whiteness and <laughs> colors yeah. in the Latinx community. Yeah, like we're like called, like the reason the term white Tina is on the show is we, I was on this, um, I don't know what it, it's like an Instagram th thing for like this activist group and they were talking shit about Vida and like Tanya and specifically and you know me being like not gonna let anybody talk shit about my friend um, started defending the show and started defending Tanya and they saw my Instagram picture and they called me a white Tina. And I'm like, what is that supposed to mean even? I guess they were correlating like the class. It's, you know, like, I'm educated, and so they were like, oh, you're just a white person trying to, be, or you're trying to be white. And so they called us white teen, and we're like, what? And coconuts. And coconut. what does even that mean? <laughs> and um, it was just so weird, and so we wanted to use that for our show. And now we, we have a song that, in season two, that oh we created God. a song I about white teenas. So it was like kind of like a fuck you to the, the people. <laughs> but yeah, there, it was just weird. Like, so even we were like considered like, white uh, to like a lot of the communities just because of our, our status or whatever it is, so. And people don't know your stories, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, I mean, they are, I mean, they're always gonna be people that's gonna hate. I mean, as far as David Makes Man um, and the way we approached the show, even as a writer's room, was that, okay, yes, the show is gonna be unapologetically black, but it also has universal themes that everybody can relate to. Um, we have been had very surprising, you know, after people have seen the uh, pilot, 
different people from all, I mean, when we came here for South by Southwest, I was surrounded by 10 um, students and not one was black asking me about different things about, you know, the, um, how do you get, you know, basically tell your story and use your voice to tell your story. And I said, you use your voice to tell your story. I've been in this business for a very long time. I've been lucky enough to knock on wood, continue in this business. But it's been wonderful to be able to tell a story like this about, you know, this young man and, you know, relate to it this way. And then there's other things that I, you know, don't relate to, but we have mystical realism, um, comedy and the way he uses power of imagination. There are so many different things, elements. And I think that's the way of showing, you know, as far as the working class. And it was also important for me to show um, this uh, a, a mother, a single mother, raising two kids in this community um, and what she goes through. Because a lot of times people see the single mother in all these different shows as someone who is, you know, absent or you see the kids running around. And then you, we show you, yeah, she's absent, but <clears throat> there's a reason because she's working her ass off, you know, trying to make sure that these kids can continue on. So um, I think that's a lot of those themes in our show as well. Yeah, um, I know what you guys are all thinking, but I'm actually not white. Um, my, uh, my dad's black, um, so I'm mixed race, and I grew up with that story and that experience, and people always just assume I'm white. Um, and people, when I'm having dinner with my cousin, people will be like, who's your friend? You know, and I'm like, this is my cousin, she's not my friend, we're related. Um, but uh, so in, in this Florida Girls show, I talk about that, and Kim Whitley, who's like a very amazing, hilarious uh, comedian, black actress, she plays my mom in the show. That's um, so great yeah, that Kim, Whitley, Kim Whitley is back. Kim Whitley's, and she, and she plays like a like a conniving like con artist like scrappy single mom like doing anything to get ahead uh -huh. um, and she's amazing uh, and so that, uh, that that's a theme that we sort of play with in the show um, and then of the four of us one of the girls is black and then two are white and then I'm mixed race so we're kind of we deal with like race and talking about stuff but something that was important to me was to show black and white female friendships because um, I think like there's not a lot out there um, and I think that's bullshit. Uh, so I really wanted to show like real black and white female friendships but also have a character who's like authentically black, not like, you know, a white Tina, um, but like an authentically black girl who grew up in like a black neighborhood um, but has like best friends who are white and um, they make fun of each other and they get along and it's great. Um, so that was all important to me. The scene where uh, Kim Whitley calls your character on whining about Everyone not believing that she's black was <laughs> one of my favorite scenes. Yeah, of the three there's a scene in, in one of the episodes where I'm like complaining to my mom because I'm like, no one thinks I'm black, and like I don't get to like I don't know my identity and I don't know where I fit in, and she's like, bitch, like shut the fuck up. Oh, so you assimilate too well in the white community? Like I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, it's that is so amazing. Awesome. It's amazing. Yeah, it's wonderful, and I'm just like, oh. <laughs> um, and she does it so well, and she's great. Since you brought up magical realism in David Makes Man, and that's also um, a, a thread in Vita, can talk more about that, how, how, it's, uh, how it runs through the show and how it reveals the character. Um, uh, basically, again, using the power of imagination to get through a childhood trauma. Um, he, uh, David walks around in this world, and we do a thing, you know, as... Um, people of color, we do co-switching all the time. So it's basically, the show is kind of like showing how when he goes through his, you know, his neighborhood to get on the bus to then get to his school, you, we show you all the different things that he does to basically put his mask on uh, when he gets there. And, um, and navigating, because that's basically what you, know, you end up doing. It's not anything that's talked about. It's not anything where there's a class. Child, we need to talk to you about co-switching. 
No, it is something that you just know kind of like innately as you kind of like go around the world. Um, but his imagination is so powerful. We have things where, you know, um, not to give away so many, uh, to give away anything, but we may break into song and dance. Um, and I remember thinking when we, when I read the script, when we decided to do this in the writer's room, I'm like, if we pull this off, oh my God. And um, I think we did. And it was like amazing. Um, and I grew up daydreaming all the time um, when I was a kid. So, and, but as I started writing, my daydreams got less and less. So then I realized, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be getting everything down. And that was from early on. Um, so I, that is part, part of how it's being used in our show. And the dead walk among the living on Vita as well. Talk about that. <laughs> yeah, um, the first season we had um, a little girl that appeared to Emma, and only Emma saw this little girl. And, you know, at first you don't really know why she's appearing or who she is or whatever. But then um, at the end, it's, it's spoiler alert if anyone hasn't watched it. <laughs> Should I do it? Okay. It's uh, over a year. I think it's all okay. Right. It's revealed that it was her mother, and it was like, you know, the little girl, it was the little girl, um, you know, when she, it was her mother, and she was seeing, and she, Emma's haunted by her mother throughout the whole first season. Um, so that's a way we showed magic realism, but also we have this whole uh, magic element with a bruja, which is a witch. And in our culture, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just ingrained in our culture, and it's more about, like, spirituality. And so we have Lynn see um, Doña Lupe, who is the witch that lives in their building for help with, you know, her love life or anything. And she has these spells that will help her. And so in the first season, you see her say, Doña Lupe, I just need to... Um, I need I need to get rid of the porqueria, which means I need to get rid of all the ugly shit that is like holding me down and not letting me be my true authentic self. And so Doña Lupe is like, are you sure? And she's like, because you know, once you do that, it's not everything. We're gonna get rid of everything. It's a, it's like a cleanse and a spiritual cleanse. And um, Lynn's like, yeah, just do it. So she does, and we see in the finale of season one her do this um, ritual and her get this limpia, and she does get all the porqueria out, and then things start happening. And, you know, we see Lynn, um, everything that's supposed to happen to Lynn is happening, but it's not necessarily a good thing. So we bring this character, we take this character to a place that she didn't expect, um, and even, you know, like, it, it, it complicates things, because it's not exactly what she wanted, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, ma magical realism, I think, for Lynn's character becomes a catalyst for um, the, her journey. So she, you know, she has this whole relationship um, with her first love, Johnny. And so you see what happens when she goes through the magical realism. So uh, we use that. And, and for us, it's, uh, you know, we've had a couple comments. It's funny, like, when I think about it, I don't even put the term magical realism into it. To me, it's realism because a lot of us do believe, you know, and a lot of us do practice or, or go to a bruja. All of my development now goes through the bruja. Um, <laughs> I'm following Tanya's lead, and it's working. Uh, so, so yeah, so for us, it's just so authentic and so grounded in our experiences of, like, when I sit across um, from, from my senora now, I, I just feel like it's therapeutic. Like, it almost feels like a therapy session. Um, so a lot of this, like, I think when you see magic on TV, a lot of times it's this supposed to be this, like, oh, this big ritual thing, and, it, you know, the, the witch with the pot, and that's just not true. It's not what it is. Uh, it's much more of a blessing and much more of a cleansing kind of spiritual journey. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I I'm think, from New Orleans, so I can totally relate to that. <laughs> exactly. No, I think it's also important to note that like our culture like doesn't have, talking about cl- working class, we don't have access to therapists. So, um, or we don't have health insurance or whatever it is. But we do have a bruja in the neighborhood. And it's, you know, bruja has such an ugly connotation to it because you do think of witch, but it's almost like a spiritual healer or like a, a therapist that you just kind of go to to like, you know, let your worries, like let her help you with your worries. And sometimes they give you spells and sometimes they don't. But, you know, and also like we don't, it's people go to them, to these spiritual advisors, I guess, if you will, because they can't go to the church. The church is very judgy or whatever. So we feel like, you know, let's say if I have a problem in my love life that I don't feel comfortable going to a priest, you have that access to that person. So. Um. One thing that people sometimes tell me when I write about shows like The Handmaid's Tale or Good Girls is that they don't want to watch them because they are not escapist enough. They're too, they remind them too much of the, you know, the pain and struggle of their own lives. And so I, I wanted to talk to all of you about that, how you calibrate how much to show characters struggling without making it stressful for the viewer. And we'll start at this end because there's another show that a lot of people know very well about a bar that's not doing great called Cheers. Uh, but the bar in Vita is not Cheers, so start at your end. How you, how you walk that line? Oh, man. Well, this year the sisters um, really struggle because, you know, they don't have a lot of money to rebuild a bar that their mother totally abandoned. Um, and it's one sister that you know, had to sell her belongings, basically, and uh, invest in trying to make this place better. While the other sister's racking up debt While and credit cards. While the other sister is racking up debt, yes. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's going to be a struggle, and you see peop- there's a storyline where, like, one of the employees is, like, stealing, and it's just, like, you know, you do show, like, the realism of... And that came, like... Somebody was like a bartender, and they're like, oh, yeah, bartenders sometimes don't get tipped or don't get paid well, so they steal from the bar, and it's like a thing in the industry. Well, I think I that, that, and that's in the episode, too, where, um, where uh, Nico is trying to explain, like, this is, there was a way you could have handled this exactly. other than what you did. Yeah, yeah and, you know, um, Emma is not used, she's not used to this type of thing. She's used to very corporate, like, this is what we do. There's HR, and you have to follow the rules. But, you know, um, on our show, it's like... It, Everyone is struggling, and everyone in the bar is like gonna fall apart if this sister doesn't put it together. And like, then this other sister, Lynn, is like, yeah, racking up debt, and it's just, it's just a mess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that it, I mean, it's a difficult thing to do, of course, but every show will have some uh, amount of conflict, obviously. And for us, like, the struggle of the characters is part of that. Uh, we do have, obviously, moments of, of relief and. Um, I think what really makes a show, why you want to watch it, why you want to binge it so much is because the characters are so compelling. So that sister relationship where one is like literally trying to keep the bar alive and the other one's like, you know, spending all their money on credit cards that are uh, that are actually under her mo- dead mother's she name. She racked it up so fast. Yeah. She spent so much money so fast. So like, I mean, that is about the struggle, but it's also about the relationship. So I feel like that's what keeps it so compelling and that's what you want to go to watch. And that's escapism part of the show. Um, Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's about the character relationships that keep you watching. Um, Yes, it delves into all these um, things, but I think it's character development. People watch television, I think, for characters. I mean, Game of Thrones had everything that was, you know, put upon them. Those Starks, poor babies. But... um, (laughs) 
you know, everybody, but it's, but it's about, it's when you connect, there's a connection and everybody's looking for a connection, especially in television. Um, and I think that's kind of like the main thing that keeps it going and, and, and sneaking in all of, showing you how, how, you know, the differences and how they live and the struggles they go through. But there's a lot of fun and there's a lot of humor. I mean, we have dance, we have music, we have the magical realism song. So it's, it's all of that as we say, the black excellence is is also um, put in between all of the story. Yeah, I, I think I think the humor. I mean, because my show is just like fully comedic, um, so like I think humor makes it super palatable. Um, I think something that was happening when we were like, you know pitching the show and in sort of in the beginning stages people were like oh is it going to seem like you're making fun of poor women and I was like I I was a very poor woman like I'm not making fun of poor women I'm just telling these stories and and we had so much humor in our daily lives like someone would get hit by a car and like the story would ultimately be really funny even though they didn't have health insurance and they had to like fix their own broken leg or whatever like it ended up being like there was humor in it and par I partly wanted to tell these stories comedically because I think like it doesn't have to be so dreary all the time because I don't. I don't think people, even at the most poor people, are not living every day like I'm in hell. You know, I think you, people persevere and they find you know light in the darkness. Right. Um, part of what I think makes a show rich is that you can imagine it being told from the perspective of any character, and that's certainly true of David Makes Man, where you can imagine it being, you could have Gloria, David's mother, as the POV character, or Dr. Woodstap, or, you know, his friend, or, you know, Brother Elijah down the hall. Like, how, talk about the decision to make David your POV character, other than um, that he's in the title. <laughs> <laughs> and basically that, that is Terrell Alvin McCraney, um, the brilliant playwright, which I'm rooting for him to win his first Tony this weekend for The Choir Boy. Woo! Like pulling for him, because um, it, it's loosely based on his uh, life as a 13-year-old when things kind of took a switch. Um, where you know, which way are you going to go? So it was like that was with the, the POV, but it's also was surround. You know, he has a younger brother. Um, how does his mother? Where does he get a lot of his survival skills? And then we have an episode, um, one of the fourth episodes that we kind of concentrate on her. Um, that I wrote this because I we want to show you where all that comes from, and you get to see that in real time, um, which is fantastic because how many you never get to see these type of things on television, which is awesome. Um, so, but it was important to see to use David, and then how when we branch out to the different characters, you know how it is that you see them one way. But who are they really? And so we, we kind of do that as we go because we, we approach the show as a 10-hour film and we approach the show as a 10-hour indie film. Um, so it allowed us to like play with things that are usually done very conventionally and do them unconventionally. At least that's what we were, you know, hopefully we, you know, we thought that we, <laughs> no, we did it. But, um, but it was important to be able to tell those stories, even with Davis POV, through the other characters as he goes along. And then you understand it by the last episode, why. Okay. Um, the carceral experience is something that comes up in all of your shows. I mean, not in any of the three screeners that I saw of Florida Girls, but it feels like any of them could get arrested at any time for anything. Um, and on Vita, we had uh, Baco this season, who's a formerly incarcerated person, who certainly, like, that doesn't hurt him in the neighborhood. He's definitely more respected than Emma, who under, you know, from a different perspective would be the more respected person. So, talk, and, uh, you know, David sees people arrested in front of him, too. Let's go down the line. How do you integrate those stories, and why was that important? Um, well, it was important to show Baco's character because he is a real 
person from the neighborhood. Like, we wanted to show, we, the sisters moved away, right? Um, they moved away, and I mean, with the exception of Mari and Eddie, this character has been living in Boyle Heights. Um, he embodies everything about Boyle Heights. And um, I, I talked about this on another panel, but he's, we, we wanted to stay away from the Cholo um, stereotype, but we wanted him to be real and grounded and have, you know, um, a kind of a complicated story which we we don't we just touched on, but we hope to touch on more in season three. Um, but we, I don't know, like I feel like that's somebody you see walking down the street in Boyle Heights, and we just wanted to have somebody like him because it, it, it's real. <laughs> Same thing with Chelsea's character Maddie, who is just also very authentic, and she actually is from that area too. So she's great. The actress. The actress, Ma uh, Chelsea. Yeah, and we do have one more arrest at the end of season two, which is, uh, it's so subtle, and I don't know how much audiences capture it, but I hope it's something that people talk about and that we can potentially address in future seasons, which is, um, uh, there's a protest outside of the bar, and their characters who own the bar say, well, she was the one that started it, and it's activists, and the person that's actually arrested is the activist. So there was something, obviously, that we were doing there that, as subtle as it was, I hope that you know it's picked up on, which is the person that the police expects to address versus the person uh, arrest, right, versus the person that potentially looks a certain way, and so maybe passes, and so they obviously don't get arrested, so... Hmm, I think in David Makes Man, I actually was trying to think of it. I mean, down the line, there is an arrest, but that's more of a, um, it's a pivotal character, character development because you get to see who this person really is. Um, we have uh, drug boys on our show, but we don't have only one or two incidences of cops. And I remember when the editor, when I first saw the cut, there were a lot of sirens. And I'm like, why do you have so many sirens, <laughs> you know, on the show? And because it was kind of, it's perpetual in your head that you think when you're in this type of neighborhood that you always hear sirens. Um, I actually live in Studio City near, I mean, and I now hear more sirens than ever I heard in the hood. So I was like, <laughs> I think it's just the universe of what's going on in the world. Um, but it's just a matter of showing their day to day you know, of what they do, and that is not always, you know, being roughed up about uh, with cops. Um, we kind of use cops at a, as a story point uh, for something else, actually, um, as you watch it down the line. So, um, yeah. These girls just break the law a lot. I was going to say, you <laughs> yeah. have a person who's stealing from her friends all the time, and they're like, well, all in a day. Yeah, there's a, there's a character who just, like, steals compulsively. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, they're just, they break the law a lot. But they, you know, <laughs> they get by. They don't have any run-ins, though. They're pretty crafty. So. I can't wait to watch this show. Every time you keep talking about it, you keep talking about it, I'm like, okay, okay, these are great characters. Okay. <laughs> Uh, they're also running through all three, all of the shows are uh, the portrayal of characters who have particular ambitions, that that's kind of a catch 22 for them, and that they tend to be, they can be regarded with suspicion. Um, talk about that, because that's definitely true for your character on Florida Girls. Yeah, well, in the, the pilot, the sort of catalyst for the show is that this girl moves away. So each, we wanted each girl to have their own takeaway from that. Um, so like this girl moves away and then now how do they feel? And one of those girls feels like, well, that girl's an idiot and like Florida's amazing and she's gonna miss out on all the fun we're gonna have. Um, and then another girl is like, I, I think we're losers. Um, and like, I think we 
need to get our GEDs and like be something and maybe move out of here someday. And then another girl is like, yeah, you're right. Maybe we should better ourselves. I should probably stop stealing. Um, so it's like everyone has. And then another girl is like, I need to marry my rich old boyfriend. And it's like, no, that's not the takeaway. Um, so like everyone has their own through their own point of view of like bettering themselves. But it's like, you know, little baby steps because the, the girls like they're smart, but they don't have any information. Like none of them had dads um, like their dads weren't around and their moms were, you know, working all the time and they had to raise themselves. And so their idea of like the world and like, like we do an episode where they learn like, like what feminism is for the first time. And one of them's like, that's so stupid. <laughs> like, so we can't flirt anymore. Like she's like, this is so dumb. Um, and then one of them's like, no, I think there's real merit to this. And like, they're just kind of figuring out life. Um, Cause I feel like, because I didn't go to college and I dropped out of high school, um, I like, I didn't learn about feminism until like five years ago. And I was like, this is rad. Um, but like, I didn't grow up. No one was like telling me to, to be a feminist. Um, so they're sort of just like slowly gathering information throughout the season and um, yeah, and uh, trying to better themselves in their own way. <laughs> um, I really want to watch your show. Um, <laughs> please do, please do. Because I, I can hear some of the my friends and those characters. Um, David is a 13 year old, has a lot heaped on him. He, you know, as you um, hopefully will check out the show, um, you know, he kind of helps take care of his younger brother. Um, to keep him out of trouble because he is a hothead and he's always trying to navigate him. Um, he and his mother have a pact. You know, she goes to work every day um, trying to make ends meet and he is trying to get into this all-boy prep school um, through the this pressure of this, school. Like, it seems like it's, like, equal to when you're applying to college. Like yes. he's, he already feels this pressure. Exactly. Already feeling the pressure at 13, at a time when you should be a kid, but you're going through such a transition. Um, as someone very important to him, um, and I can't even say, because uh, I'll give something away, but it's how you <clears throat> use all of that, and you have to, and he, try, he has to try to make these adult decisions that this young boy shouldn't be making, you know, um, and he does something within the course of, um, that starts off his morning, that it's because of his innate, I have to survive. There can only be one, meaning one young black boy that can be able to do this. If he you know, succeeds, then how, what does that do to me? Then I break my pact. That is crazy, but that is reality for some, you know, a lot of you know, kids. Um, so it's kind of like showing that um, rather than you know, hitting you over the head and saying it. Um, and that was like really important for us in, in showing this character and how he navigates. And what's great about David, his superpower is basically seeing everything from here, but able to like kind of like understand and go, okay, I know my role in this. I just have to like figure out how to get from A to B, you know, constantly on a day to day. Um, that's exhausting. And as you go through the series, you understand there'll be. Um, Somebody will mention or say, he's like, you look really tired, you look really exhausted. And it kind of like, as I said, because it's a 10-hour film that we're showing in 10 episodes, um, you kind of like show how that goes, you know, as you go from episode to episode. I want to watch your show, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, I got so enthralled with their answers that I, uh, the question is about how to better the about, characters. Uh, characters getting, if they have ambitions that they're regarded with suspicion by people around them. Yeah. It's very interesting because on Vida, Emma goes through this journey where she she's doing really well for herself. So she's technically in Chicago and she's passed and she's assimilated culturally, you know, and in, in this corporate world. And so she 
decides to come, she has to, she's forced to come back because her mother dies. And so during season one, you see the journey where she makes a choice to stay and to try to make this bar better. But what we realize, I think especially when we delve in deeper in, in season two, is that regardless of the financial problems, like actually her trying to make the bar better is making her better. But in this in this level of like of character, which is very different than sort of like what you normally would think is like aspirational or what you normally it's not it's not financial, you know, because for her, it's so complicated to try to take over this. I also think that we're dealing with the theme of gentrification on our show, and which actually is a uh, more for our. Um, it's called gentrification, which is upwardly mobile um, Latinx people taking over things in the uh, Latin neighborhood, and so her trying to better the bar and better herself is getting a lot of uh, flack from the community and especially from the, the protesters because they feel like they're being erased. And so even like she's, you know, her aspiration is, look, I want to just bring, you know, people to our bar that can spend more money and can help the community and make it look better. But like there's like a very complicated line of how we can do that. And so that's why the protesters are protesting and like you see um, Mari and Yoli who are the you know leaders of the Vigilantes that they are protesting the bar at the end. Um, and you know we can't really win. It's like a weird dynamic in the community because it's like look like we're just trying we're trying to better our own you know community and have things for us but we are also like displacing people by doing that, so. You have to do it in the right way, which is what I loved about watching Vita and was so excited because, you know, I'm not Latinx, but I can totally relate, you know, having a sister, coming back to the neighborhood, how you're looked at, you know, when you go away, that, oh, you're better than us, or you're like doing all these, and then you have to deal with the family dynamics of it all, and then you have to basically do it in the right way, as you say, be like, oh, this is great, you know, not that you're giving back or you're seeing it, but it's like, I'm taking this over. We're going to like totally turn this around. If it's going to, you know, with gentrification, but we're going to do it. But then they have other people to do it. You got to do it in the right way, you know, yeah. so. Um, oh, I thought, ooh, we're getting music for our life. <laughs> One of the episodes that we that was uh, provided for critics of Florida Girls involves uh, the, the thief character um, applying for food stamps over uh, her own uh, moral and su her suspicion about it. And I, I watching it was so impressed with how you handled it because it seemed like it was almost and I mean this as a huge compliment, like positive propaganda for people who are watching, like, no, food stamps are good. You yeah. should have them. Like, talk about how um, how that sort of, uh, yeah. you know, well, uh, you could use the show to educate people in that yeah, way. Yeah, because I think there's a lot of, um, even within poor people, there's poor shaming. Like, I think poor people will poor shame you if they're like, oh, you're on food stamps. Um, but, like, I have friends that have been on food stamps and it's been, like, super life-saving for them, like, for those periods that they've needed them. Um, and, like, the food stamps are, are I think they're there's so much like stigma on what it is, but now it's just like a credit card. You can use it almost anywhere. You can go to Whole Foods. You can buy healthy food. Like, and if you are in that situation where you need it, like, don't be so proud that you don't take care of your body or your family. Um, so yeah, there, there's the girl who her mom. Her mom is like a like a full monster. Um, her mom like bilks from the system in every possible way, and she's like the girl is afraid if I get on food stamps, I'm gonna end up like my mom who has like 17 foster kids that she like collects checks for and like her mom's like crazy. Um, but the point of the episode is like, no, like take some help. That help is there for a reason so you can get by and you can take care of yourself. You're not gonna end up like your mom. Your mom is a monster because she's a 
monster, not because you know she got help from the government. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the the point, I guess. And that's where that came from is uh, is just watching friends go through it and just like sitting at Wick with friends of mine and them feeling ashamed. And I'm like, dude, you're getting food for your kid. You're being amazing. Don't be ashamed about this. Yeah, it's about survival. And I'm glad you're showing that because as a kid and, and being in New Orleans, when my grandmother used to give me those food stamps and like go to the store and I'm like, I'm not going to store. And you'd be trying to like wait until everybody comes up, you know, gets out of that store. And then you're like, OK. And it wasn't the Wick beautiful, nice, oh, credit, you know, credit card that you can pretend. It was like the, you know, like Monopoly money or like the dollar that you would like be given and you would have to do the coupons and I would just be like trying to like wait and then, you know, try to like give it and like get out of there. And then as you get older, <clears throat> um, with, you know, age comes wisdom, <clears throat> you realize, yes, that is survival because these people would, um, live paycheck to paycheck most of the time and they work hard. I used to watch my grandma like leave and she would like work and you do need assistance when you're like, you know, try, when you're living that way. So now it's, um, I'm glad they changed it to look like a credit card, and that it is called WIC, and that they can go to Whole Foods or other things, because it was very, very limited, yeah. you know, when I was a kid. Yeah, the program's called, like, Snap now, and, like, it's not, they took all the taboo off of it. Yeah. And the character was, like, eating barbecue sauce for a couple of days, and we're like, come on, man, like, it's time for you to go do something. <laughs> yeah, right. But David goes through a similar thing, too, where he's offered help at school and is very suspicious about it and what effect it might have on his mother if he doesn't, to say the right thing to the to the school counselor. Yeah, exactly. And you know, and you know, it's interesting and as you, you know, watch the show, he is very aware of a situation and tries to use his situation sometimes to get him favor. So, it, I mean, like I said, that's why I say David is very sometimes Machiavellian. He's too smart, but he's a 13-year-old at the end of the day. Um, which makes it like, okay, universal, you can like, you know, understand that because he is, again, trying to get from A to B. And that is not always hard. And we always have to remember that it is a 13-year-old that is trying to get from A to B. So um, we do use all that. At, and we actually, at one point, was thinking about having a scene around um, regarding food stamps. Um, but we had so much story that, <laughs> that we had to like scrap that, but it was, you know, but he does always like try to figure out, okay, what do I say now? Um, and the pilot, he talks, um, the counselor is, is talking to him and she goes, wait a minute, did you eat today? And he doesn't answer, um, uh, but kind of like answers. And then she goes, do you know, have lights? He goes, uh, they're back on now. So it's like he's answering in like different ways without actually saying it in that way. So yeah. Sounds so. I don't know. I just want to watch your show moving. too. Moving. I know so it emotional. sounds very moving. All I'm of like, these yeah, shows are really good. It's like a commercial to watch all our shows. <laughs> <laughs> but something similar happens on your show too, toward the end of season two with Mari, where she gets kicked out of her house, and it's it, you really feel for her. Like she, it, it's not clear, and this is a character who has two jobs. Like where she even is going to be able to live. Yeah, we wanted to show the effect of like someone who has two jobs. She gets fired from her third job in the episode, uh, episode two, I believe, and she struggles every single day. And she is the breadwinner of her house. Well, her and her brother. But it's like, yeah, she get once she gets kicked out, it's like, where is she gonna go? You know, and that is so true. It's like we. Okay, like yes, let, let Latino people have huge families, but oftentimes we don't. Like I, that story was very personal to me because that's basically my story. Is like when I was young, I got kicked out of my house, and I was kind of like I had nowhere to go. I had to, like my I was 16, and I couldn't go to just my friend's house in the middle of the night because her parents would like freak out. So I'm just like, where do I go? You know what I mean? And it, it was, yeah, it's it just shows like 
how hard it is for someone like that. And, you know, we don't have money to go to a hotel. We actually had a whole story where she had to um, go to get her last paycheck from Emma to go stay at a hotel, but it was like she barely had enough because she only, you know, I don't know how much she got paid with Emma, but she had maybe enough for like a couple nights and that's it. And then she would have to figure out what to do. So it's just, you know, it's the story of like a person who struggles and has to live paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, and we even did the math to try to get that reality of like what is it that she's actually, how much money is he actually making and what's realistic. But I think at the other end when we said, because there was another pitch in the room that was like, oh, well, of course she would stay with her friend Yoli. But we realized like the in that version, for that character, the moment of most inspiration is if she stays with the sisters because they're like, they're, you know, their biggest enemy. Um, so that was the way that we were able to show that was that choice of staying with the sisters as opposed to like the hotel or anywhere else. And I think with um, Yoli's character, she was displaced at the, her family was displaced at the very beginning. And she was like, yeah, my mom signed a piece of paper that the landlord said, you know, we have to move out. And like, we didn't get, so they were living in a studio apartment with her aunt with like, I don't know, seven other people. And so she like offers Mari to stay, you know, in her, on her floor or whatever. But Mari's like, nah, I'm good, you know? And she doesn't tell her because there's like a level of pride, like, I'm good, I'll, t I'll be okay. And then at the last moment, she goes to pick up her, her paycheck from Emma, and Emma like sees that she needs somebody. And it's like the last two people that you ever expect to be cool with one another because they got in a huge fight last season. But it's like, yeah, at that level of desperation and at that moment, they were like, okay, I'll stay with you for tonight because I have no other choice. Uh, I have one last question, and then we can throw it open to the audience questions. What is the story that when you started on your show you most wanted to tell have you told it yet or is it yet to come start with that uh, with Gladys the story I want most wanted to tell I mean it's more of like an issue that I thought was important uh, at least in my I can only speak for my the scenes in my episode because uh, the story of colorism within the Latinx community is a whole issue like we're all different colors and I feel like I talked a little bit about white Tina earlier but the other word that is kind of like uh, I don't know, it's like kind of derogatory term, but it's also a term of endearment, which is weird, is a prieto. It's, it's basically like brown-skinned person. And it's like almost like said in like a, you know, it's like kind of saying like fatty. You know, it's like it's cute, but it's also like, what? Excuse me, what did you call me? Um, and I, I wanted to tell this story of like how uh, class, not class, uh, colorist our, our, our culture can be. And so in my episode, I have this scene where this Nelson character um, is basically like saying, like, I wouldn't sleep with anyone that has like dark nipples, or I only sleep with women that have pink nipples. So basically saying, like, I would only want to have sex with white women. And so, or like light-skinned women. And then we have this other character saying, like, oh yeah, it's, my aunt would always call me Prieto, and like, um, she always said, let's mejorar la raza, which is basically better our race. So you couldn't, you, you were like not allowed to like marry like a darker skinned person or whatever. Um, and it's something that I haven't seen done um, in at least on television for, uh, when it comes to Latino shows. So it was like an important story for us to tell. Yeah, we wanted to expose how racist our community can be, you know, and it's, it comes, it's, it's so rooted in who we are. Um, in, in sort of our roots and our, our backgrounds. Like I remember in Puerto Rico, one of the biggest phrases is like, ¿Y tu abuela dónde está? So it's like, and your grandma, where is she at? 
And usually the answer to that was like, oh, she's in the closet. And it was because they were trying to pass as white. But then you'd have to go back to the generation to see how white you were. I mean, it's like, it, it's such a complicated story because most people think like, oh, well, you know, you are of color, but like we are of color, and yet there is so much racism within the community. Um, but one of the stories that I, I really wanted to tell was um, the activist story, you know, and I wanted to make sure that we were at, at tr try to be as true to to their voices as possible. Um, people who are fighting for the community, a lot of times who are giving up their jobs and, and who really take this on as sort of a, sometimes their first or fourth job, you know? Um, we I, we got to tell a protest in the second season, so that was super important to me. We tried to do it in the first season, we just didn't have enough real estate, so I'm so glad that we were able to tell it in the second season. And with it, we're always folding a little bit of references to immigration, um, and I hope that we can continue to speak more about that. Um, are you talking about stories within the show or just yeah, stories yeah. in general? Oh, okay. Um, oh, I spoke of one. I really would, thought it was important to show Gloria's um, POV, who was David's mother, and what she has to go through uh, um, in a day. Uh, and I think the other story was just the... Um, there's a... Down the line, there's a story about uh, David going to a dance. And that's like the one show we realized, you know, where he was just a kid. He got to be a kid in that episode. And it was like, that was very important for us to kind of like show that, you know, part of it, which also gives you the humor, which also gives you the fun of this community. I think we do that, you know, a few times. So um, those were the two things within all of the, you know, emotion, the grief, what he's going through. It was more important to tell those type of stories. Uh, when I was 16, my friend and I walked in on her boyfriend in the middle of an orgy. Um, so I really wanted to tell that story. Um, and I did. <laughs> so I'm really Spoiler. proud of that. <laughs> um, uh, no, but I mean, I think like primarily I just, I, I was very inspired by Broad City in that there's so many shows about women who like have sex with each other's boyfriends and stab each other in the back. And um, I just really wanted a show where there's like this like impenetrable female friendship thing um, that they don't talk about. I mean, they make fun of each other. They're not like particularly nice to each other, but they're so loyal and they're so like, if one of them's in a fight, the other one comes out of nowhere and like punches that person in the face. <laughs> like they're like, you know, like a pack of girls um, and they're never going to betray each other. They're, there's never going to be in question their friendship or their family bond. I really, really wanted to do that and I think we did that. I love that. Okay. Kate. Emily. Question. Answer. If you had the most brilliant idea. I do. What is it? I'm not telling you. No, fine. Let's say you had the most brilliant idea for a new TV show. Oh. Okay. Category. Okay. What would you do? What would be your first step? You have this idea that you dream about. You think about while you're eating, about while you're walking around, about while you're listening to this right now, and all you want to do is yell it into whatever listening device you have. I have the most brilliant idea. This is a TV show that should exist in the world. I mean, I'd probably tell you. But then I don't know. I don't. How would I get it made? You know what I would tell you to do? If you told me. I would tell you. But you're not really you. Like in this case scenario, oh, we're not okay. us. Great. Just way stay to be with complicated. Me here. Then I would tell you you should submit to ATX Television Festivals the pitch competition. That's a great idea. Yes. That is a great idea, except I'm not eligible. Nope. You are not. Okay. So because I'm not eligible, whoever is listening to this, can you do me a favor? If you have a great idea, it's just it's sad that I can't make my dream come true this way, but you can. 
you should submit to the pitch competition. But Emily, will you tell me, I mean them, how to do that? Yes. You go to atexfestival.com backslash pitch. Great. Step one, internet. Internet. And then all you have to do is submit a 90-second video pitch of your idea. It does have to be a scripted idea. Okay. No, we are not making reality shows at this point in time. Great. Scripted. And you also have to have a five to ten page writing sample. Okay. Check. Two things. So you go, you fill out the form, you upload them. There are very specific instructions on how to do that. FAQs, I'm sure. And you have until January 17th. Just mark that day on your calendar. Right. And then through a series of rounds mm-hmm. with some of our screeners and judges. Like the Blacklist and Sundance Labs and executives and such. And TV runners and producers. Not TV and fans. People who make well, TV. But they I are mean, all TV fans. Great. Great. Then after that, we... They are our judges. Select the top 10 finalists uh-huh. and those top 10 finalists pitch live at the festival. And like they, a live studio audience. Yes, like a live studio audience. Oh, and then the winner is then mentored by one of our judges mm-hmm. or other ATX panelists. Mm-hmm. And then you get to pitch live to... Yeah, at this point, you definitely pitch live. But, but then you get to pitch to our studio network partners. Oh, to maybe like see if they want to buy it? Uh, the, to then make the TV show. Oh, guys... You're so lucky. I'm screwed, but you're <laughs> lucky because, like, I'm. It's. It's. I'm guessing it's illegal for me. You said that, right? It's yep. illegal. For it me is to definitely do it. illegal for you to submit this way. Great. I'll um, find another way. But you guys do this. It's much simpler. But if you go to atxfestival.com/backslash/pitch, all the information is there. But really, the only thing that you have to have is an amazing idea for a new TV show and a writing sample. Yep. From now until when did you say? When does it end? January 17th. Great. ATXfestival.com backslash pitch. I'm just asking for a friend. We'll tell your friend they should go and pitch now. Does anyone have any questions in the audience? Over here? Like the mic is coming. Um, how hard it is, is it to sell your shows to TV executives who are probably making six figures? <laughs> I mean, to be honest, um, Vida, it, it was, Stars was such a great home for Vida because Stars allowed for this show. You know, a show about a Latinx show, there's just not that many on TV. A queer Latinx show, I mean, we're just not existent, right? So I, we are obviously really thankful to Stars to give us that platform. But I do have to say that there was a process. Like, we had a yellow light for a long time. <laughs> so Tanya had to write the pilot and then do a pilot presentation. And then once I think they saw it on the screen and they, and they were able to relate and actually, or at least be able to say, understand like, oh, that's what that show is. Then they picked up the, the room. And so we were picked up, but we weren't sure if we were actually going to go into production. So we were writing episodes, hoping that we were going to go into production, but we weren't sure. And there was just so many barriers, and I think that's just because of the nature of, you know, sure. I mean, definitely because of the class, and our, in our case, also because of the of the culture, right, and the the city. Like, there are a lot of barriers to to break, but. Marta Fernandez, you know, you'll hear Tanya if you ever hear her in a panel. She always name drops Marta Fernandez because she was the executive there that was a huge champion for the show. I think that's what I found. Like when you 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 we de- we do need the allies, right? And we do need people that represent us and our stories on the other side as well. 
to be able to make that. We, the decision makers also have to to be us in some ways. Yeah, that's great. I love Marta because I just showed her too, and she is very big advocate for you know different voices and different stories. Um, and I think it's a, it's a time for it as well. I mean, as far as Terrell can speak more to that as far as, because I think he and Michael B. Jordan went around to a few people. Um, and, um, and he tells it better, but when they went to own, um, they weren't supposed, they weren't even um, slated to pitch to Oprah. Mike Kelly, who was another exec producer on the show, Basically, Oprah came in to say hello to Terrell. You know, um, she was excited to, you know, uh, have them come in and pitch. And as she was leaving, Mike Kelly goes, Miss um, Oprah, I know that you're, you know, busy. I know you're going to another meeting. Because she said she was walking around trying to, like, um, she was thinking of something. And then he goes, but could you, like, we only, it, it's only a 15-minute um, <laughs> pitch. That pitch was, like, 45 minutes or something like that. <laughs> so, and Terrell does it very funny. And then he goes, wait a minute, what? I'm about to pitch to Oprah? And he goes, um, so he does this whole pitch, and Terrell is fabulous with it, and everybody's, like, crying on the end. And she ended up buying it. Our partners in crime, but this Warner Horizon and um, the Oprah Network, and I think there was another, I think there was another, um, network that was vying for it, um, but Terrell felt like OWN was going to be the home for it. They have been our um, advocates from day one, um, so that has been fantastic, um, especially in this day and age with so many different networks. Yeah, um, we did a similar thing to that where we we did a pilot presentation, um, and then we there's a company called Jax Media, and they they did they produce Broad City and um, Younger and a bunch of amazing comedies, and uh, they did this model with Search Party on TBS. If you guys know Search Party, watch it; it's incredible. Um, but Jax privately funded the pilot for Search Party. They cast it themselves. They. Wow wrote exactly how they wanted to write it, they made it exactly how they wanted to make it, and then they took that presentation to TBS, and TBS bought it and aired that pilot, and then they, you know, the rest of the episodes. Um, so we, for many reasons, we knew that, like, it was going to be a little bit of an uphill climb. Setting it in Florida, I think, you know, is is tricky for some people, and not having anyone famous in it, and, and me, I wanted to act in it, and believe it or not, I'm not famous. <laughs> I don't know if you guys knew that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I wanted to act in it. So it was like, for many reasons, this seemed like the best way to set it up was to get a company attached that would pay for it to get like a sample product of what we wanted to do. And, uh, the president of Jax is from Florida. So he read the script and was like, let's make this. And I was like, oh my God, they're my dream, dream company. So, um, we took the pilot presentation, uh, and from that presentation, we shopped it around and, um, pop was the network that was like, you don't have to change anything. Like you, you know, you don't have to recast it. You don't have to rewrite it. You can do exactly this and we were like yes um but i it was lionsgate is our studio and they came on board after pop did um and Lionsgate was saying that, like, they, you know, this it's a tricky thing um, on the, the sort of depicting lower class shows because they had Shameless. And the guy who created Shameless is so famous, and I'm blanking on his name, but he's amazing. Oh, John Wells. Yes. Well, yeah, John Wells. Yeah, the U.S. version, yeah. Yes, the John U.S. Wells. version, yes. Um, he said, you know, he had this, this script, and they were, like, taking it out, and he said this is going to be a, a challenging thing to pitch. And they were like, what? Like, we have this great show. We have you. We have whatever. But he was like, keep in mind that we're pitching to people who went to to really good schools and like probably have good families and like these worlds are so foreign to them because to become an executive in Hollywood like you gotta you know you gotta have an education you gotta come from a place where you're able to do that um, and so it was an interesting thing um, sort of like educating people that don't come from that world that like A this is a real world 
B, it's okay to watch it. <laughs> um, and like, in, you know, it's not, it doesn't have to be like so scary or like untouchable. Like you should watch it. You should learn about people that you don't understand or that you didn't grow up like. Um, but I think, I think it's changing. I mean, there's, you know, at least three shows that are going to be on the air. <laughs> Thank you for your question. Thank, you, so Thank you for coming. Thank you so much. Thank you. The TV Campfire is produced by Caitlin McFarland, Emily Gibson, and AJ Myers, along with our audio partners, Five Ohm Productions. Mark your calendars. ATX TV Festival Season 9 is happening June 4th through 7th, 2020 in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit atxfestival.com and follow us on social media at ATX Festival. And be sure to check out our episode notes for a very special discount on badges exclusive to the TV Campfire podcast listeners. As always, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. And stay tuned for even more exclusive releases each week.